Hello and welcome back to the To The Heights podcast. This is Olivia Colombo, and I am so excited to be embarking on this project of sharing stories of the young people of the Catholic Church and those who minister to them. Our title, To The Heights, is a translation of the quote, Verso Lealto, by Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati, a 24-year-old Catholic on his way to canonization because he glorified God in his daily life as a student, as a lover of mountain climbing, and in his caring for the poor and vulnerable. His quote, To the Heights, is a prayer and reminder to keep on reaching for God and for sainthood in our ordinary daily lives. Through my own journey in ministry and media as a young Catholic, I cross paths with our guest for today, and he is certainly reaching to the heights. Our guest for this episode is Father Damien Ferentz, calling in all the way from Rome into the studio in Boston. Father Damien is a priest of the Diocese of Cleveland, studying for his doctorate in philosophy in Rome. He teaches, writes for Bishop Barron's Word on Fire, runs a summer institute for teens, and just recently published his first book, The Strangeness of Truth, Vibrant Faith in a Dark World. He's also a lover of Flannery O'Connor and Bruce Springsteen. Father Damien and I met at one of his book signings a few months back at the Daughters of St. Paul bookstore, where I was actually reporting on the launch of his book. Now, a few months later, we got to catch up about his life in Rome, his vocation story, and I got to learn all about his summer institute for high school seniors, the writing of his book, and some of the inner workings of higher Catholic academia. All right, without further ado, I hope you enjoy the conversation and learn and get inspired by Father Damien's story of reaching to the heights. All right, I'm here in the Catholic TV studio in Watertown, and I have a very exciting guest on the phone. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Father Damien Ferentz. I'm a priest of the Diocese of Cleveland, currently on assignment here in Rome at the university, the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, also known as the Angelicum, uh, in the doctoral program in philosophy. So I'm happy to be on this podcast. Yeah, I am so glad that you are here. So we met a few months ago, I think in February, when your book um, launched, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah, and I came to report on it when you had a book signing at the Daughters of St. Paul, which was super fun. Um, great. Yeah, and you, I think you are definitely the furthest podcast guest we have had, like furthest in distance away from Watertown. Um, That's great. And I'm glad that you mentioned that you're in Rome. How long have you been in Rome? I landed here September 18th, so what's that, eight months or something like that? Maybe? Okay. Yeah. yeah. that sounds right. So, so it- we're just finishing the second semester of school, and in Rome, uh, everything starts a month late, so school starts in October, so it ends at the end of June, but we're getting in the final season. But I'm done with my course requirements, so I'm in this doctoral phase, and I have some different things to do, but still working pretty hard. Interesting. So how long until you're done with that in Rome? Uh, This doctoral program is on paper three years. So I'm hoping to be done with a PhD in philosophy uh, by June of 2021. That's that's the hope. And I I think it's reasonable. I'm, I'm I'm, I'm at a good place now. So that's the hope. That's awesome. I didn't realize I was in philosophy, not theology. That's super cool. Yeah, it it. We have a college seminary in our diocese in 
Cleveland, and I have a licentiate in philosophy. I earned that at Catholic U in D.C. 10 years ago, and so I taught philosophy um, at our seminary for nine years, and then my bishop sent me here to uh, get the doctorate, to earn a terminal degree. So I, I, I'm going to have to go back and teach for some time with that, which I'm excited about. Um, but yeah, so getting the doctorate here. Yeah, that's so cool. So awesome. Um, I have a bunch of things written down that I would love to talk to you about, but I think one of the most logical places to start as this podcast is kind of about um, showing what young people of the Catholic Church look like um, in their own vocations, is to talk a little bit about your own vocation. So where, at what point did you decide that priesthood was your vocation? How did you end up discerning priesthood, and how long have you been a priest? Kind of what's okay, your journey? The, yeah, the, they're, these are fun questions, because <laughs> we're actually talking about this today at, um, at lunch here. So I thought of the priesthood once uh, before I actually decided to go into the seminary. And, and as, as far back as I could remember, I, I was raised in a good Catholic home, and we went to church every Sunday. I think I only missed Mass. I actually don't think. I know I only missed Mass once in my life when I was in high school to go to the mall. And <laughs> one of my friends said, just grab the bulletin and give it to your parents. And I wasn't the perfect high school kid, but I did go to church every Sunday. But um, when I was in eighth grade, I remember Monsignor Moriarty. I went to a Wood Academy, and I had Wood nuns almost every grade. Monsignor wanted to come in and talk to boys, we thought we were getting in trouble, but he gave us a vocation talk, and at the end of it, um, he, he left, he was an older guy, probably in the 70s, pushing 80, and I turned to one of my best friends, who's still one of my best friends today, and we recall this story a lot, and I said, dude, do you ever think of being a priest? And he said, no, he goes, "Of you, I'm like, no, and, uh, and then I said, I have, and he goes, me too, <laughs> and so we, we used to have these um, yearbooks in grade school even, so I guess you call it middle school today, but in eighth grade, I wrote in his uh, yearbook, and he wrote in mine, and one of the things that he wrote to me was uh, not keep in touch, K-I-T, or F-F, friends forever, <laughs> but he actually wrote B-A-T. Huh. So we'll hold that for now. I went to high school. I really enjoyed high school. Not If you read my book, you'll know I didn't enjoy the school part that much, but I loved the social aspect of it. And I, I did love my faith, especially my senior year. I really got into senior ministry. And I thought I was going to go to Walsh University. I wanted to study theology, be a high school theology teacher. I wanted to play baseball there. And that summer, a lot of things happened. I made a retreat. I was playing on a traveling baseball team with a lot of people of different faiths. One of my best friends joined a non-denominational church. I started listening to Scott Hahn's tape. So mm. a lot happened intellectually that year and, and spiritually. And then it was the first time in my life as an adult, because I was 18 years old at the time, that I considered priesthood for myself. Like, I thought it was a good thing for the other guys, but I never, ever thought, like, me. And when I did it kind of resonated. And so I, I talked to my high school chaplain who knew me very well. And he thought I was fooling at first, <clears throat> but I wasn't. <laughs> and I remember going back to my eighth grade yearbook and looking in there and seeing BAP. And BAP stood for Be a Priest. Yeah. And so I took that as a sign, like, all right, maybe, maybe this is what the Lord was calling me to. So 
I switched my plans. I told my mom and dad, I said, look, I don't know if I'm going to be a priest or not, but I do know we have a seminary here in town, and I figure if I'm going to figure this out, that's a good place to go. So when I was 18, uh, right after high school, I entered the seminary, and I thought I'd give it one year. And if it worked, I'd stay another year and just discern by the year. Well, nine years later, I wound up ordained. I was a parish priest for four years. My bishop sent me to Catholic U for two. I taught for nine at my um, college seminary in Cleveland. I was also the director of human formation. And now I'm in, I'm, I just celebrated my 16th uh, anniversary of ordination on Friday. Wow. And I'm finishing my first year here in Rome. So it's been an adventurous life for sure. Yeah. Wait, do you want to tell me, we were going to record last Friday, and then you told me of your super cool plans to celebrate your anniversary of ordination. Do you want to tell me what uh, you ended up doing? No, uh, no, because the plan fell through because oh, no. I couldn't get the altar that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had hoped to have the super special altar. I still did celebrate at that time, but not at the altar that I wanted to celebrate <laughs> at. So I won't mention where I wanted to be that day, but yeah, let's just say maybe it'll happen next year. So. Okay. All right, that's yeah. that's very cool, though. I don't know. I had never yeah. really thought of like, I I guess the priests in my life 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 don't really like celebrate their anniversary of ordination. Like they acknowledge uh, it, but like yeah. it's just like a wedding anniversary. Like that's a yeah, very sure. interesting thing, and that ties yeah. into my next question for you that um that you would want to celebrate it with the Eucharist, which is very logical. Sure. Um, would you want to tell me what the greatest joy of this vocation has been thus far? And that's a hard question. So maybe some of the few greatest joys? No, I've thought of this one. I mean, people ask this all the time, so I can answer it. But first, okay. let me backtrack and say one more thing about the celebration of an anniversary. Yeah. There are sweet, like, awesome prayers that a priest can pray on the day of his anniversary. And like you, you pray him, it's like, I'm your humble servant, you've called me to do this, and I always get misty-eyed when I pray it. So I wanted to say that, because that's something I look forward to on May 17th every year. Okay. But on to the greatest joy. Okay. This is how I answer this question. The greatest joy of the priesthood is simply being a priest. And what I mean by that is oftentimes when we think of vocations, whether it's marriage, religious life, priest, or whatever. We think of the things that you do, so like the functions and and the actions, and those are all super important, absolutely. But the fact that I, like, I'm a pretty normal, well, I think I'm kind of normal guy, (laughs) but like, you know, my dad was a construction worker, I was born in Parma, Ohio, not not like super fancy, I'm from Cleveland, so we're meat and potatoes, (laughs) and uh, I feel like... mm, like, I'm totally undeserving of the call of priesthood, the vocation to it, because I just feel the way. Um, but at the same time, I feel that because the Lord called me to it, then this is why I do it. And and th- that wherever I go and whatever I do, whether I'm pumping gas or taking a rosary walk or playing music or reading a book or hanging out with my friends, I'm doing it as a priest. And I, I just en- I enjoy that immensely. And people... Uh, will often say, I, I, you're my priest, or I like hanging out with my priest, especially my young people at my first parish, and I just like being a, a priest. It's a, it's a, it's, you know, Flannery O'Connor talks about the habit of being, there's something about the, the ontology, just the, the beingness, like I, this is what I am, and I enjoy that, in the same way that uh, 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 someone would like 
I like being a husband or I like being a wife. I like being this, you know. Um, I don't, are you into journalism? Is that what you are into? <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay, so, you know, I like being a journalist. Sure, you like doing these interviews, you like writing this, but you just being being what you are, there's, there's something to that, I think. True. Um, that's deeply satisfying. Yeah, yeah, that is a very... Very deep and beautiful point, and I'm glad that you have that thought-out answer. Um, Do you have any tips for people who are potentially discerning religious life, whether that's some version of consecrated life or the priesthood? Yes, actually, this came up. This came up at uh, lunch too. Um, <laughs> it's funny that you should ask. The Lord was preparing me for yeah. this question. I think a great tip is don't over discern. Okay. Um, I think in the past there was a temptation to under discern and not you know, pray or think about it too much. But I do think, um, what, what did Kierkegaard call it, the analysis paralysis, that yeah. you're constantly overthinking things, and then, then you get stuck, and then you can't make a move. So um, you kind of want to play, you know, like you would tell an athlete, you don't want to be um, too nervous where you can't function, but you don't want to be so chill that you can't play well. So in baseball, you know, when you're holding a baseball bat, you have a, 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 a loose grip on it. If you hold the bat too tight, well, you, your, your body gets too tight and you really can't drive mm-hmm. the ball. But if it's too loose, it falls out of your hand. So you want to you wanna play loose, but you want to also play in control. And so you'd want to have a good prayer life. You'd want to hang around people who believe uh, what Catholics believe and do what Catholics do. You want to be meeting Christ. Uh, both in the Eucharist and in the poor, or those who are on the margins. Um, I think you also want to ask other people who know you well what they think about your discernment, because discernment is not something that's ever done in private. You know, the, the idea may come to you in private, like in Eucharistic adoration or a nice contemplative walk or praying the rosary, but um, just in the same way, if you're dating someone, it's not like it's just you and that person, but you're actually, hey, this is so-and-so, and you introduce them to your friends, or uh, you take her over to your family, and yeah. then you ask these questions, and then the community actually becomes part of the discernment process. And and then it becomes easier, and you take some pressure off yourself, because uh, these are big questions, but it's, it's a little bit at a time. You figure out, okay, how do I say yes to the Lord today? And then once you figure that out, do that the next day. And before you know it, you'll find you'll find yourself in a place where um, you're doing the Lord's will, and wherever He's calling you will come naturally. But you're you're not figuring out, you know, the priesthood in one act of discernment, or or marriage in one act of discernment. I mean, you you get to know the person, and 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 then you, especially in you know a dating relationship, and it's over time and questions and you get in arguments and you go through hard times together and you figure out if this is what the Lord wants. So same same thing in religious life and priesthood, you know? True. Very true. I remember a few episodes, Sister, we talked to Sister Bethany from the Daughters of St. Paul. Um, she's awesome. And she was talking about how their years of formation aren't just for them to figure out if they want to like live in the community. It's also if the community wants them to live with them for the rest of their lives. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, we have a, uh, a great gift in our uh, diocese back home in Cleveland in that we have a college seminary, and it's been around since 1954, so um, people know about it, and, our, and the young guys in our diocese 
um, will come there, and a lot of them will come discerning, well, they'll all come discerning priesthood, but I would say of the guys who start, half of them do not wind up being priests. But what they do is they come to the seminary and they discern, and they learn to live a life of virtue, they learn discipline, they learn good philosophy, hopefully, and theology, and then if the Lord's calling them to priesthood, then they stay on the track, and if he's calling them somewhere else, the time spent in the seminary is not at all time wasted, but it was time discerning a vocation, and they got an answer, so now they can go do something else. So we've got guys who are great teachers, and youth ministers, and lawyers, and artists, and doing all sorts of cool things, um, and that, that, that life started out with uh, discernment of the priesthood. So time is never wasted discerning the Lord's call and prayerfully trying to figure out what the Lord wants you to do, you know? That's so true. So very true. Were there any points that you kind of doubted or thought that maybe, not that you were wasting time, but, I don't know, that you might be called elsewhere? Um, yeah, I would say, so there's a couple ways to understand this. Um, I would say there were times uh, in the seminary and even in priesthood where I wanted to go elsewhere because times got hard, you know, like, mm. oh my gosh, do I want to do this, or I want, and I think that's pretty normal when you're living a life of discipleship that something else may seem more attractive to you. Um, I remember my home pastor used to say, kid, the grass is brown on both sides, <laughs> because sometimes when I was in the seminary, I'd think, man, if I think it would be a lot easier to be married, and it'd be a lot more fun in this, and he's yeah. like, yeah, there's suffering in every vocation. So um, if we go back to 2001, so let's go fall 2001, and so it's my fourth year of theology, and it goes into, you know, spring of 2002. So that was the year before I was going to be ordained a deacon and a priest. Hmm. And that year, 9-11 happened. Yeah. Um, two months later, my mom died of cancer after living in a cancer home for over a year and battling it on and off for 15 years with four different types of cancer. So that was pretty difficult, you know? Yeah. Um, and then the Boston, you know, you're in Boston, the Boston mm -hmm. uh, abuse scandal hit in January of that year. Yep. Our, we had a scandal in Cleveland that hit in March of that year. And th that summer, I was like, I, do I want to do this? Like, is it, is it worth it? And so the question you asked me was, did I ever feel called to do something else? I, I think maybe by the, the devil or the culture, like, get out, get out. Mm -hmm. But when I went into the depth of my heart, um, I, that call to priesthood was there, and it's always been there. And I think it always will be there, because that's what the Lord wants me to do. Now, uh, I do have free will. I could choose to do other things, but I, I don't, I don't. I don't think the Lord would call me to do anything but what he's called me to do now. Like, yeah, a different assignment. Okay, I, I serve in a parish, I'm a student, I'll go back to seminary. But um, he's called me to be his priest. And I think staying faithful to what I promised uh, my bishop and his successor, staying faithful to what I promised the church, is going to be where I find my salvation, my happiness, my peace, and where others will find it too. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, because a lot of times it's really hard. Just like it's, I know a lot of married couples who struggle because discipleship is hard, yeah. marriage is hard, religion is hard. Like, that's one of the things I don't think we tell our young people enough, that life is difficult, it's hard. There's a reason we have 
of images of a crucifix. So we are reminded that the Lord entered into that difficulty, the hardness, the pain, but said, stay faithful, stay faithful, because I'll bring you through it, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, so, yeah, to answer your question in a roundabout way, I've never felt the Lord call me to anything else, but sure, you know, you get, you get tempted, like, yeah. gosh, it would be easier to do this or that, or sometimes... I'm an extrovert, if you can't tell by the way I'm talking to you. <laughs> Doctoral studies are really hard because you spend a ton of time alone reading and writing. And I actually do love reading and writing a lot, but I never miss a meal because I want to talk to people. You know? yeah. And sometimes I think, oh, it'd be great to be a parish priest again because I'd have all the people. But then I know I'd miss, oh, but I don't have the solitude. So I, I think wherever you are, it's so important just to be faithful to where the Lord has called you right then. And, and He will do great things with your fidelity. And the pain that you feel, it's like an, you know, an athlete. When does an athlete feel pain? Um, not simply when he's injured or she's injured, but a lot of times when the muscles are stretching and growing, you get sore. And a lot of times some of that, that heartache is a sign that your heart's expanding. Mm. As Augustine would say, your soul or your heart's stretching so that you can love more and receive more love. So... Yeah, I think uh, there's a great temptation to run in fear or run and hide, and, and one of the things the Lord calls us to do is to simply take a step forward in trust and, and follow Him. Wow, yeah, there is so much there. Amen to all of that, I guess. Well, yeah. I'm sorry I talk so fast. <laughs> no. I, miss, I don't get to preach much anymore, so once you ask me a question, I'm like, woo, oh, true. let's talk. You know. Yeah, do you ever, when do you say Mass on Sunday? Like, um. Uh, well, we have, there's, I, let me tell you where we live. I live at a place called Casa Santa Maria, and it's a 400-year-old convent in the center of Rome, wow. which has been transformed. It was formerly the North American College, um, and then since 1951, this has been a graduate house for mostly American priests. We have five Australian priests here, but English-speaking priests who are doing graduate studies, so in Scripture, canon law, philosophy, theology, morals, whatever. And so currently I want to say there's 77 priests that live here. And um, during the week I tend to celebrate the Italian Mass at 1230 with a few guys. My Italian's not great, <laughs> but it gets better every Mass I celebrate, you know. Yeah. And then on Sundays we have a communal Mass, and I've had that as a presider twice, once in the fall and once in the spring. So, you know, as a parish priest, I was used to preaching at least a homily a day, if yeah. not two or three. And on weekends, you know, um, two, three, sometimes four, depending on uh, what I was doing and who needed help. But here, I probably preach a homily maybe once every two weeks. And mm. and, and that would be a daily mass homily. It's about 40 seconds. Yeah. So, um, my writing uh, and writing letters and study, like, and yeah, it just... Priest that takes on a different, uh, a, a different, um, uh, yeah, different rhythm here with the graduate student. It's good, and I, um, but it's different for sure. True, yeah. It's almost like a call within a call, like to be in the academic world of priesthood. It is. It yeah. Is. I, I, I got a, um, when I did this the first time. I went right from a parish, uh, which I loved, by the way. It was a wonderful parish, and if I could give a plug. Mm -hmm. um, I threw this up on Twitter yesterday. On Sunday, there's a guy, this is St. Mary's in Hudson, who was ordained a priest. 
from this parish. Mm. And he was the seventh guy in seven consecutive years wow. that he ordained out of the same parish, which is super rad. Yeah. And uh, I'd say that's the parish that taught me how to be a priest. Because seminary prepares you for priesthood, but the people of God will teach you how to be a priest. And I always credit St. Mary's and Hudson for doing that for me. But anyway, um, I went right from there to an intensive Latin study at Notre Dame and then two years at Catholic Hebrew, and I was not prepared for the, <laughs> like, the homesickness because I thought, whenever I thought of priesthood, I thought priest and his people at the parish, and I had to learn how to be a priest apart from a parish as a diocesan, which... Um, they don't train you for that, so you kind of have to learn it on the job. That was hard. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole yeah. side of priesthood that I guess I I don't know much about. But um, yeah, yeah, it is interesting to be a diocesan priest without a, a parish. Um, and I'm sure all of the priests who like work in the like archdiocese, like I think of our pastoral center here, like many of them like maybe live at a parish or live elsewhere, but they have the same right. struggle. Yeah. yeah, I did want to talk to you about studying philosophy and theology. Um, okay. because I feel like not many, I feel like I'm misunderstood a fair amount of the time when people ask me what my major is. And I say that one of my majors is theology. Um, but you've obviously been in the study of philosophy and theology for a long time. So I wanted to know what your, I don't know. I have a couple of questions, but I guess what's your favorite or most interesting part, do you think of studying theology or philosophy as opposed to studying something that the world would deem more like useful like people always ask me like what are you actually going to do with the theology degree yeah well i would say this you mentioned useful and you're right like other degrees will be more useful in terms of getting a job Mm -hmm. but philosophy and theology by their very nature are meaningful and Mm -hmm. more meaningful and they they address the biggest questions that human beings can ask, like, why are we here? What's our purpose? What does it mean to love? What is the nature of friendship? Does God exist? If God exists, what's our relationship to him? What does it mean to live a good life? What is happiness? Why is there suffering? So, you know, all the disciplines are important, absolutely, for sure, but it seems that they, like, in the the medieval universities, Theology was like the science, the queen yeah. of the sciences, and philosophy was the one that assisted, like making good distinctions and um, understanding concepts and, and and categories and being able to talk about these things, you know, in a in a structured, systematic way. So, you know, if you go out, I don't know, you're you're are you even twenty one? No, no, I'm not. Okay, <laughs> well. Eventually, one day you'll go out to a pub, and people will be talking there, and most of the time. Granted, they'll talk politics, which also True. includes philosophy and theology. I mean, they, they, it's not the same thing, but there's political philosophy, and theology definitely has its say in, in the common good and how societies run. But those are the kind of questions uh, and discussions that people like to get into um, that matter to them, and they matter to everybody. And I think uh, understanding how to, how to talk about uh, these most important questions, and to, to go back in our human history and see what the brightest light of, of philosophy and theology have, have said and have written on these topics is really, um, it's comforting, it's challenging, it's stimulating intellectually, and uh, it, again, it, gives, it, it, it helps give meaning to life in a way that's not utilitarian. 
because it's not just, you don't study these things because you're going to get paid or you're going to have a job or you're going to do this. Hopefully you do get a good job in it. But the point is, it's, you're not doing it for the money. These are, you're doing it because you're a human being and this is what human beings do. We talk about these most important things, you know. So I guess the meaningfulness of, of philosophy and theology is a, is a great draw. And people are always interested when you do tell them. They may say, well, why would you do that? But then... <laughs> You know, once you get in a conversation, they, they tend to be pretty interested in it. True. Very true. Yeah. And then ask you very big questions that it's a struggle to answer sometimes. Right. And sometimes you have to rewind and say, okay, I could answer that, but let's cover this first. And, and to, yeah, get underneath underneath the, 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 the questions, too. So. True. Very true. Um, I have another question. I, I have I'm two ready. somewhat random questions. But one thing that I think is a good point of having media like this podcast that's accessible to, I don't know, younger people who might not be super into the world of academia in theology and philosophy, something that I found very confusing at first was um, I studied right across the street from the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College. Um, And there's all sorts of degrees coming out of there, like Master's in Divinity, STLs, STDs, PhDs. Would you want to walk us through which degrees you have and kind of what the progression of degrees in theology and philosophy look like? Just like a brief general overview for people who don't really know. Okay, sure. So the most um, basic degrees you would get in undergrad would be a Bachelor of Arts, either in philosophy or in theology. I'm guessing at most schools that's probably about 30 to 36 credit hours with a uh, probably a senior project of some sort. When it comes comes to graduate level theology and philosophy, there's a few different routes. So the traditional master's degree in philosophy or in theology. But you mentioned uh, STB or STL or what I have is called a PHL. So what's the difference? Well, it depends where you live. Okay. So in the United States of America, and I'll use my example from Catholic U as a... Uh, uh, to, to make this distinction. Um, my, my program there back in 2007-2009, which I love, it's a great school by the way, um, I was sent there to get a licentiate in philosophy. And okay. so if you say, well, what the heck's a licentiate? <laughs> a licentiate is actually a medieval degree which gave you a license to teach in a seminary. Huh. So, um, in order, and, and the church in many ways still follows that. If you're going to teach in a seminary, you should have a license or the documents say an equivalent degree. So, my bishop wanted me to have a licentiate in philosophy. And in the United States of America, the only school that grants a license in philosophy is the Catholic University of America. So, my degree currently is, would be a PHL. Okay. A, a, a license in philosophy. And notice, there's no F in there, because if I would, I don't have a, I, have, I do have a master's um, in theology and an MDiv. So the MDiv track is for those who are studying for ordination, and an MA would be those, I got that in addition because I could at my <laughs> seminary, but also a lot of uh, folks, like lay students from the outside, will come in to our seminary to get a MA, and our major seminary in Cleveland is St. Mary's Seminary. So, um, but back to these license degrees, because this gets interesting. So, the in in Europe, there's a three a three part cycle. So, the first cycle is your bachelor's, second is license, third is doctorate. Yeah. And in theology, it goes 
STD, so Bachelor's in Sacred Theology, and then um, Licentiate in Sacred Theology, so STL, and then your Doctorate in Sacred Theology would be, and it's, not, it's unfortunate for Americans, it's called an STD, but it means a Doctorate yeah. in Sacred Theology. It's not a sexually transmitted <laughs> disease, although that's a joke people always make. Yes. But what's interesting about this is that Philosophy is not considered a sacred science, but theology is because it deals with revelation. Mm. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So mine is mine is in a an inferior science because huh. uh, uh, faith and reason come together in theology in a way where, um, yeah, philosophy alone is not sacred, right? Because we're just dealing with the natural, and not yeah. the supernatural. So, um, and then the other the other degree that could come up along with, especially here, would be um, a canon law degree, so an STL, uh, Sacred Theology of Law, and then a, a JCL, or no, is that how it goes? I don't know, but they have their own <laughs> degrees, too. I'm not a canon lawyer, so I don't remember their exact titles, but I think it's JCD and JCL, okay. a license in, in divine law, or divine, yeah, some jurisprudence or something, I don't <laughs> know, but anyway, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. Is yeah. that helpful, Olivia? Or no? That is very helpful, yeah. I feel like okay. I just learned a lot in the past two minutes. Um, okay. Yeah. What's your area within theology? This is another thing that I'm learning, and I've kind of narrowed it down. I'm studying, like, liturgical and sacramental theology, because that is what interests me. But where did you end up? Well, when I was at our seminary, I wound up doing, I guess it would be more pastoral theology, because mm. I was extremely interested in youth ministry, yes. because I was profoundly affected by the ministry of Pope John Paul II to young people, in particular his World Youth Days and his encouragement and vocation. So um, the first couple of papers that I ever published in journals, I wrote as a, as a seminarian, and it was on John Paul and youth, or the youth in the Eucharist. So that was the direction that I was heading, um, which is probably why my bishop sent me to the parish that he sent me <laughs> to. Um, so that was my concentration, I would say, in terms of um, uh, in terms of theology, and also I would weave in their culture and art because I've always been interested in that music. And with my stuff for Word on Fire, I do a lot in terms of culture and um, pop music and film. But in philosophy, I when I was at Catholic U, it was ethics, I would say, and um, and anthropology, the human person. Okay. I wrote on Max Scheler and Aristotle and exemplary agents. Hmm. But now. I actually just submitted my uh, dissertation proposal yesterday, so I'm waiting to hear back from my director. But what I hope to write on um, are the philosophical foundations of Flannery O'Connor's art. Uh, You may be familiar with Flannery (laughs) O'Connor, probably the greatest American fiction writer, and she referred to herself as a hillbilly Thomist. But it's interesting because she didn't read a ton of Thomas straight from Thomas. She read um, Etienne Jolson and Jacques Maritain. I'm reading a book right now called God and the Unconscious by a Dominican named Victor White. And so I'm trying to determine what her sources were that informed her Thomism, and then what that looks like against the Thomistic tradition, and then how it shows up in her art, which is her fiction. So that's that's what I'm hoping to write on uh, for my doctoral dissertation. So you can pray, just pray a little prayer that, that they accept my proposal. Yeah, for sure. That's, I actually, speaking of Flannery O'Connor, I knew that at some point she would come up. Um, (laughs) So the editor-in-chief of The Torch currently, um, Adriana, who was on a podcast a few episodes ago, 
Um, she loves Flannery O'Connor as well, and she's actually currently reading your book after I wrote the article, and she's very much enjoying it. Um, but she asked me to ask you, what would you re- recommend for other contemporary writers or artists, um, kind of with the whole idea that we should be surrounding ourselves with, like, good, authentically beautiful media? That's great. Okay, so... I am currently taking a course at the Angelicum with a Dominican named Father Kevin O'Reilly, and the course, I'm auditing it because my coursework's done, but it's on Thomistic Aesthetics, hmm. so beauty and how all that comes together. And one of my professors, uh, Father O'Reilly's big claims is that, um, and he's right, it's such a claim, that beauty is always connected to truth and goodness, and the reason that we have a crisis today in beauty is because we have a crisis in truth and goodness. So those things are always going to be connected somehow. And if we want to take a look at O'Connor's art, and her art is a bit funky. I mean, she's writing post-World War II. She's recognizing what's going on in the culture in terms of um, secularism and nihilism and fatalism and all the isms that have kind of uh, overtaken things. So she's not writing like Pollyanna soft fiction. She's writing grotesque, hard fiction, dark fiction. But I would also say that it's beautiful because it's connected to the good and it's connected to the to the true. And this is a woman who lived a very disciplined life, um, would wake up in the morning for the most part of her life when she was the last 14 years when she was in Milledgeville, go to mass with her mom, come back, have breakfast, and then dedicate three hours every morning to writing and not writing letters or just writing her fiction. And then she would in the afternoon, read and have visitors and, you know, feed her peacocks and do whatever. <laughs> we usually in bed by nine at night. But her, the rhythm, her art was so informed by her faith, by practicing, um, you know, participating in the sacraments, by also by her reading and by her study and by her friends and her correspondence, that she couldn't help, in a way, um, her art couldn't help but be marked by her faith and be good because she was so dedicated to her craft. Um, and, and I think in terms of social media and the beautiful, I, I, I really do, I, I, I like pop music, I like rock music, I am interested in all that, but I think if you're not really grounded in a, in a life of prayer, uh, in some ways a life of asceticism, some penances along the way, and good friends and, and you're not if you're not locked into the sacrament that stuff eventually will crush you so mm. um, you, you really have to know who you are and be grounded in your faith and be part of a community to be able to dialogue well with the culture um, and you also need to be so grounded in your faith and in your and, and in goodness and truth and beauty in order to present something beautiful I, I, I think that's true like you can't give what you don't have and if you're not totally saturated in in the life of faith and you're not going to be able to produce art that will really um do what it's supposed to do in terms of promoting the faith you know so true yeah and i use the phrase you can't give what you don't have all the time especially in youth ministry when we're trying to get teens to like teens who are leaders to pray um and to like develop a prayer life like you can't bring christ to other people if you're not spending time in prayer with them um right which i actually can i say say something yes go ahead um when it comes to prayer, I think that when, when, like, if young people are listening to this now, I, sometimes I listen to podcasts if I wake up in the middle of the night and can't sleep. So maybe there's a young person who's listening and they say, oh, he's going to say something important. <laughs> I hope it's important. Um, when you're praying, it's really important to remember that 
you're not the one who's really doing most of the work. Like if you get yourself to the chapel and you're like, I can't focus, I can't concentrate, I can't do this. Well, look, stop thinking about I, I, me, me. Just sit there and let the Lord work on you. True. And, and, and prayer is so much of what God wants to give you and do with you and not so much about what we do for him. So get yourself there and then just let the Lord work on you and you'll find good things happen. Sorry to interject, but I felt like I had to say that. Yeah, that is so beautiful. And something that is completely relevant to teens. Next, I was going to actually ask you about your summer institute that you founded. And I don't know, I... If that's your advice for teens, I can only imagine what fruits have come of that. But would you like to tell me a little bit about your summer institute, when you founded it, and what's it all about? Sure. So... When I came on our seminary faculty, it was in the fall of 2009, and I was teaching there for maybe about a year and a half and gotten some good conversations. A former colleague who is now, actually, I think he's going to be the new uh, chair of the University of Dallas Philosophy Department, Dr. Chet Englund. Wow. He and I would have some conversations about the fact that there were summer camps for basketball and volleyball and um, band camp and uh, Boy Scout camp and all sorts, and even Steubenville conferences, mm-hmm. praise and worship and renewals. And, and we were thinking, uh, we could probably do something like that here because we had classroom space. The guys were, seminarians were home in the summer, so we had dorm room space. Yeah. And uh, there's so many young people that, I met at my first assignment um, that would have loved to study theology and philosophy in high school, but some of them, a lot of them, for my first assignment, didn't go to Catholic high school, so they didn't have that opportunity. And we thought maybe we could put something on here, so um, prayed about it more, thought about it more, talked to a couple more people, talked to my bishop at the time, Bishop Lennon, and he liked the idea. He said, you got to take him to a ball game, too, so Cleveland Indians mm-hmm. game. But what we wound up doing was um, starting an institute it's called Poli Lege, which is based on um, St. Augustine's conversion experience in Book 8 of the Confessions, where he is just really struggling to try to make himself pure, which of course he couldn't do. The Lord wanted to do it for him, so he heard what sounded like children say, Tole Lege, Tole Lege, take up and read, take up and read. Mm-hmm. And he picked up the scriptures, and then he felt um, the desires that he had, the inordinate ones, leave him, and he, he felt like embraced by Lady Continence at the time, and started to uh, live a pure life. So, um, what happens at uh, Tole Lege? Men and women both, um, who are heading, in, young men and women, who are heading into their senior year of high school, come to our seminary for a week at a time. We get between 12 and 20, so we have a nice small group, and uh, so women have their own separate living space, the guys have their separate space, and every day they study theology for 75 minutes, philosophy, actually philosophy for 75 minutes, with Dr. Beth Rath, she has a PhD from St. Louis University. They study theology with Father Joe Koopman, who has his uh, doctorate from the Alphonse here in Rome. And then they watch films and analyze them through Paschal Mystery Lenses. They go to the art museum, visit historic churches, learn about the liturgy, learn about Catholic culture. Um, and basically it's an immersion into Catholic living as a young adult, what this looks like. And not just at the parish, but out in the city. And so we take the young people to about six or seven different neighborhoods in the Diocese of Cleveland. They go to the uh, cathedral and visit other churches and get tours, and then just hang out and have good Catholic fraternal time, you know? So um, 
I'm I'm currently away in the summer, so Father Pat Anderson's running it, but uh, it's been going now for seven years this summer. I think will be its eighth year. No, wow. maybe ninth year. But it's yeah, it's been very effective in helping young people see what's possible, and many have studied philosophy and theology, at least as a minor, because of it, and um, starting to get jobs. A lot of Catholic school teachers, some seminarians came out of it, women interested in religious life, so it's kind of like, I would say, AP Catholicism. (laughs) I call it uh, Catholic nerd camp for a week, and we run two sessions of it at the end of June, so it's been pretty successful, praise God. Wow, yeah, that that sounds so cool and something... I wish I could have come to Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Why did you choose to do it for people entering their senior year? Why that specific age group? Because that's when young people are making the most important decisions of their life, like where they're going to go to college. And mm-hmm. it's also at a time where they're starting to ask questions as adults. So I know there's hot debate over when is the right time to celebrate the sacrament of confirmation, and some think, you know, right when they're baptized as babies or when they receive their first communion. But at my first parish, St. Mary's in Hudson, uh, confirmation was uh, celebrated in the junior year of high school. So a whole year of formation and then confirmation usually at the end of spring. And we, what we found was that young people maybe who had left or stopped practicing had to go through formation at the same time where they're studying chemistry and AP world history and studying like uh, Shakespeare and, and all the other most important topics and subjects at, in, in high school and thinking big. And we want to say, well, your faith has uh, ha- must have a place in there because it's also important. And if you haven't learned the intellectual tradition that Catholicism is, it's, it's a great time to learn it. And so uh, it seems to be a great time in a young person's life when uh, they're making the biggest decisions to, to introduce them to the richness and the depth and the beauty of Catholicism. So true. Yeah. Yeah, that is perfect timing. And it's right after their confirmation, potentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And getting ready for their senior year. And maybe in their senior year, they start thinking, what do I, like, what do I really want to study? Again, Olivia, it goes back to that question you asked me before about theology and philosophy. People will say that's not useful, but if you spend a week studying it, you'll say, maybe it's not, I mean, it does have practical uses, but the reason you study it is not because it's useful, because it's meaningful, and it affects your heart, and it makes you happy (laughs) and more human. Yeah. Yeah. We're made for this. We're made for this. We're made for contemplation. So true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, that's beautiful. And now I feel like I have a new answer for when people ask me why I'm studying theology. But yeah, yeah. what are you going to say? Because it's meaningful or what? I guess, yeah, probably because it's meaningful. And like, I don't know, I feel like so much of sacramental and liturgical theology is like, it's it's about humanity and about like the raw sacraments and like how everything around us can be sacramental to us. And I don't know, like the raw human experience. And that makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah, it's in, I mean, it, I, a lot of what I do in my book is, I, is like incarnational theology, that we're not floating spirits or the angels, but everything matters to Catholicism, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and theology and philosophy are the sciences that explain why that is the case. Hmm. Yeah. And why there's more than just matter, but matter also matters, you know? <laughs> there's also the formal, the spiritual realm, too, but um, yeah, it's great. It's awesome. So true. Yeah, and I'm glad I meant you mentioned your book. Um, I did want to transition to that at some point in time. Do you want to tell us what it's called and what it's about generally and give us a little plug for that? 
Because it's sure. a very good book. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's, a, it's my first book. Uh, it's a little work. And Pauline Books and Media, the good dog of St. Paul, published it. And it's called The Strangeness of Truth. And that comes from a Flannery O'Connor line. The full sentence is, or the full quote, it is the business of the artist to uncover the strangeness of truth. And the uh, subtitle is Vibrant Faith in a Dark World. And so what I try to do in the book is to present or represent Catholicism to a reader who may have heard of it before and then strayed from it, or maybe heard of it when uh, they were younger and need a reintroduction, or maybe have had their hearts broken and mm, just have a bad taste in their mouth from Catholicism. So I, the way I present the faith that I think makes it unique is I do it through a lot of personal narrative. And in the intro, I say I, every chapter is like a sandwich, and there's a top bun and a bottom bun, and that's the beginning and end of each chapter. And there are stories from my own life uh, that try to draw out the theology, which I deal with in the meat of the sandwich. That's like the systematic treatment of resurrection or of suffering or of the human person. And that, that's how I've, I've, I've set the book up. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is a very good book. And I've recommended it to so many people after um, I wrote about it in The Torch, just trying to reach that, like, millennial, I don't know, my generation and a little bit older who have fallen away. Um, and I love the the subtitle of the book, um, The Strangeness of Truth, Vibrant Faith in a Dark World. That is so true. And I don't know. I love all of your stories very, very much. So, oh, thank you. Thank you for the gift yeah, that your book is. And as, as a priest, too, I mean, this is a pretty dark time. Um, and the way out of it is going to be, like, just getting back to the basic foundations of our faith. I mean, the, 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 the crisis in the Church is a crisis, it seems to me, of discipleship, first and foremost, like, uh, especially, you know, with the offenses done against young people and all, it's, it's uh, not, not doing what we're supposed to do as Christians and put Christ first and allow Him to help us overcome our weaknesses. So it really is, the, the book is trying to get back to the foundations, the most basic things of discipleship and who God is and who we are and how we find our happiness, how that all plays out, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I highly recommend it if anyone listening wants to read it well, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think we have to we have to wrap up in a few minutes. We've been talking for a little bit, but I have been doing this thing. We have a Catholic questions like speed round of quick questions. If you want to oh, answer I them, I love it. I love it. I'm ready. <laughs> all right, all right. We have like I don't know half a dozen. Wait, who wrote them? Did you write them? Or are they from like a group of people? Or what, what, I wrote what, them. What, what are these? <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. For the efficient cause, okay. But they, they have been um, changed up a little bit over the course. They It's been a very interesting. I'm excited for you to listen to the other podcasts if you want, but the the other guests, sometimes we've gone off on long, long tangents. Um, we've talked about otters. We've talked about goats. Um, very strange things that had nothing to do with the initial questions. So we've had a really okay. good time with them. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready. Alrighty. All right. Quick question number one. What is your favorite book of the Bible? My favorite book of the Bible currently is probably Song of Songs. Okay. Interesting choice. I like that. Do you, know, do you want to know why? Sure. I would love an explanation. Because, depending on your translation, God is only mentioned once. Huh. And 
that's not why I'm like, oh yeah, got to it. But because it is a, it, it's a it's a great book to reference when you're engaged in a conversation and you're trying to evangelize and maybe you bring up certain. I mean, because the, the the it's I think it's eight chapters long and it's a love poem basically between a man and a woman. And on the greater level, I mean, you can read it on that literal level, but on the, the greater level, it's a story about God and us and how God wants to be with us and intimately. Uh, united to us, and it's beautiful, and the whole story of Christianity ultimately is the story of love, and so that's a nice little preview of what uh, yeah Christ wants to do for us, I, so I love it, I think it's, it's fun. So true. So, today that is where I am, I mean, it switches, I, I've loved other books more at times, but you asked me today, so that's my answer. Okay, I like it. Um... My next question, and I, I feel like you are very well qualified to answer this question, and I feel like I could guess which author it's going to be, but what is your favorite book outside of the Bible? Okay, well, you would think I would say something by Flannery O'Connor. That's and what I, I was thinking. Sh- I probably should, but I would say, like, my f- I, I, and I do love her very, very much. But in terms of, like, what book have I read most and studied most outside of the Bible, it's probably Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Okay. And I, and I, and I, I, I used to teach it, and I have a great fondness for it, and it's really formed a great part of my Catholic imagination. But if you want to know, Connor, like right now, Habit of Being is really big because I'm constantly going back to her letters uh, for a variety of reasons. But the other one that's been up there, too, is... Have you ever read A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole? No. It's a, okay. Um, it's probably the funny... If you ask me the funniest book I've ever read, it would be that one. Okay. Yeah, he's a Southern writer. Um, he, he died, unfortunately, before the book was ever published, but it won the Pulitzer in 1980. And Walker Percy wrote the foreword. It's, it's a great hmm. book. Yeah. Okay. All right, all good book re- recommendations. I feel like I need to make a list after this first season and like read all of everyone's answers. So, do it. Do yeah, it. I put. I, you know, I'm I'm looking right now in my third appendix of my book. I do I do have like my my I have twelve books that I really that have formed my Catholic imagination, and the ones I just mentioned are in there. Okay, I yeah. I can read through that appendix. That is something I yeah, can do. What the heck? <laughs> All right, next question. What is your favorite musician or band? Oh, this is easy, too. It's so unpredictable. Yep. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. I have been a Springsteen fan since I was four years old, which means 1980 when the river came out. I've seen him 34 times live in concert. I've written a lot about him. I think he's one of the finest Catholic artists today. I know that a lot of people will get really pissed when I say that, but... Um, Watch his Netflix special of, uh, you know, the Born to Run or Springsteen on Netflix, Springsteen on Broadway, and you'll see what I mean. He's one of these guys who was so um, immersed in Catholicism at a young age that he admits he can't think outside his Catholic imagination. He can't Mm -hmm. think outside of grace and sin. And, And I'm not saying that he's a saint or that he lives a holy life. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is the way that he sees the world and the way that he understands human action is 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 very much um, yeah in line with with the Catholic worldview. And in fact, I have a piece coming out um, on Flannery O'Connor's 
influence on Bruce Springsteen because he was reading her stuff when he really started getting into, like, he said she was the one who showed him what original Sin looked like in her characters when he was writing Nebraska. And recently, he was together with Martin Scorsese, and it was Scorsese who gave Springsteen or told him to read her letters in the habit of being. So he's read a lot of her work, and it's had a profound influence on him. So O'Connor and Springsteen are, like, two of my big heroes along with John Paul II. Those are three very good heroes to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they're all great at what they do. Yes. They really are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I guess kind of the definition of the whole idea of, like, Pier Giorgio and reaching to the heights. Like, they reach to the heights of their own vocation and situation. Yeah. 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 Being a rock star won't get you to heaven, but he's really good at playing <laughs> rock and roll. He really is. True. Very true. All right, next question. What is your favorite place that you've ever traveled? Ooh, this is a tough one. I've <laughs> traveled a little bit. Yep. Uh, what's my favorite place I've ever traveled? Man, <laughs> I should have asked you to give me these in advance because this one's tricky. Okay, let me think. Huh. <laughs> well, I like Rome very much. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite place. It's very beautiful. I've actually made, again, I've done... Like, I've done pilgrimages to see St. John Vianney. I've done St. Pilgrimages to St. Cecilia because I love music. Mm-hmm. But I've also done, like, secular or literary or musical pilgrimages to uh, Jack Jack White's Third Man Records in Nashville. I've been to um, Freehold, New Jersey, to Springsteen's home parish. I've mm-hmm. been to Flannery O'Connor's farm. So uh, my favorite, my favorite, I would say this, my favorite city in the world outside Cleveland because I love my city. I think it's the greatest probably New York City okay because there's some there's like something for everyone there and um, a lot of great things have happened in my life in New York City in terms of art and music and friendship and um, so I, I do love New York City in terms of places to go in the world yeah I, and I love Rome too but I just think that's too easy of an answer I and I'm, <laughs> yeah and my Italian's not that great so I'm gonna say New York City okay all right that... final answer final answer all right that is an extrovert answer for sure. The introvert in me is like, huh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> what would you say, like the desert or something? <laughs> I was thinking more like the mountains of Haiti. <laughs> oh, okay. I've been to El Salvador. I've been to the mountains there, which is nice. But I do like, I, I like people a lot. And I think because I'm living in this little room by myself, reading and writing all day, just thinking, ooh, I need like True. people around in life. Yeah. Yes. You need all the people after so many years spent reading and writing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So somewhat off of that, and I feel like Rome might be better equipped for this, but what is your favorite church or cathedral that you've ever visited? Well, my two favorite places in the United States, anyway, like I love the Basilica, University of Notre Dame, and I love, love, love the crypt at the Basilica in D.C. Huh. Yeah. uh, my favorite church in the world right now, if you ask me today, which you just did, <laughs> is Santa Maria in Trastevere here in uh, in Rome. So it's on the other side of the river. It goes way, way back, and there's a fight between St. Mary Major and Santa Maria in Trastevere for what's the oldest Marian church in Rome. But um, I, when I go in there, you know, my mom died a year before I was ordained, so I definitely have, like, a, a, a great longing for 
mom or mother mm-hmm. and you know that's just how it is yeah. and when I go into Santa Maria and Trastevere it there's just a, a great tenderness a great uh, maternal sense when I go in there the, there's a beautiful a beautiful um, mosaic in the apse and it's very unique because often you have Jesus sitting next to his mother like the king of heaven and the queen of heaven but in this one he's actually got his arm around her and it's from the wow. 12th or 13th century and I think he's putting a crown on her with the other but it's very tender and when I go to that church I feel a tenderness there that I don't I don't sense in um, a lot of the other churches so and, and it's not Baroque and Baroque is nice but sometimes it gets to be too much and so there's a simplicity and um, like a, a femininity in that place Plus, I live with 76 other dudes, so I think, I think there's something in that church offers me that I don't find every day here and that's really good and holy and healthy for me. So I would say Santa Maria and Tristevere, final answer. Okay, that, that is a very beautiful answer. Yeah, I like that. All right, if you could meet any pope, who would it be? I might already know the answer to this one as well, but... Any pope in history of Yes, pope? yeah, any Saint, living or dead. St. Peter. Oh, oh, okay. I was thinking you were going JP2, but... I, I, but I met JP2 twice. Oh. So, I, yeah. And one was one was super quick and one wasn't so quick. Well, they were both pretty quick, actually. <laughs> but no, I, if I could, like, St. Peter, for sure. I don't know if I could speak Aramaic or whatever he spoke, <laughs> but, um, but I would love to... I'm, yeah, I, I, hopefully one day I get to talk to him. But um, I, I, the more I'm here in Rome, the more I appreciate him because... You know, we've got the, the biggest Catholic church is built on his bones, but if you think about him, he was a guy who couldn't walk on water by himself, as Flannery O'Connor would say. He, you know, wanted to tell Jesus how to wash his feet. He was told, get behind me, Satan. He denied that he even knew the Lord three times, but he realized that as big as his sins were, they were tiny compared to the Lord's mercy, and he allowed the Lord to remake him and then send him, and that's like the the model of what a Christian is. like It's not what we do, but what the Lord does with us. And that's why I have hope through this time in the church where it's so dark and people are like, what are we going to do? Well, look to what the Lord did with Peter. Well, he messed up. He was the first pope. The Lord didn't, you know, kill him. He said, I'm going to, do you love me? Do you love me? And then he, re- he renewed him and then sent him on mission. And then he was willing to lay his life down. So I would just ask Peter, like, what happened? You know, we know after he denied Jesus, he went and cried. He probably puked. I would have puked, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then, like, but what was he thinking um, between that time and when he saw the risen Lord again and was actually, you know, forgiven for his sin and, and kind of made new uh, in, in, the, in the Lord's redemption? Like, was he worried? Was he nervous? Did he think he'd have to, you know, go back to fishing full time? I'd love to talk to him about those things. Yeah. Yeah. The journalist in me has so many questions about all of those moments. Yeah. Yeah, and then, as a journalist, you ask, like, and so what would be your advice, St. Peter, for the church today? Like, what, where do we need to go? How do, how do we get over this and through this stuff? Like, so, yeah, I think that'd be great. So, so St. Peter, yeah. final answer. Peter. Okay. Um, similar question. If you could be BFFs with one saint, who would it be? Mary Magdalene. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I think... Yeah, her heart was, uh, like, so on fire for the Lord, um, and she always wanted to be around him. In fact, my, this is a, a little tradition, small tea, that we have in Cleveland. A lot of us younger priests, 
mm-hmm. that when you get ordained a deacon, you take a uh, new name, kind of like you do when you're confirmed. And when you get ordained a priest, you take a new name. Sure. So my deacon name is Mary Magdalene. Oh, wow. And the reason I took it was because I, 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 I noticed, like, once those seven demons were drove out of her life in the Gospels, she was always around the Lord, and, and she was bold, you know, especially when the morning of the resurrection, she thought they took his body. She just wanted to be with him, and, um, and her, her love for him was pure, and her, his love for her was pure, um, but it was deep and intimate, and I, and I liked that very much. So um, I'm already her friend, but like, I'd love to meet her and see what color her eyes are and color her hair is and stuff. Yeah. 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 That's, so what's your, what name did you take when you were ordained a priest? Flannery. Ah. She's not a saint, but um, since it's small t tradition, I thought, well, she's in heaven. She technically is a saint, even though she's not canonized. And who knows? Maybe one day she will be canonized. Although I don't know if that would be good or bad. But uh, yeah, those women are really very influential and formative in my life and my vocation. So um, yeah, those are my wow. those are my my women. Yeah. So what's your full name? Damien Joseph Matthew Mary Flannery Fair. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's engraved on the bottom of my chalice, too, which is funny. Oh, wow. Like, that you got as an ordination present or something? Yeah. I was the fourth priest to own it. It was um, going to go down to the missions, and it was, like, all tarnished and tattered, and I had to get it fixed, but it wound up being, like, 150 years old, and it's beautiful. It's in Cleveland now. I don't have it here, but... Um, yeah, it's cool. And then the other thing I have on the bottom of it is, uh, like, a lot of times a priest will pick up uh, a quote from Scripture as the theme for his ordination, you know, something that's meant a lot to him on yeah. the or So mine was, you can imagine it's odd, Matthew eleven twelve. 12, um, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. And the violent bear it away is the title of O'Connor's second novel. Ah. And the way that she understood that quote was, Ever since Christianity came on the scene, um, there are going to be forces that are going to try to remove it violently. And the way that we respond to that as Christians is through violence, but not the kind that you would think. It's actually violence towards self and not in some masochistic way, but through penance and asceticism and making tough decisions and um, being bold in our faith like the martyrs were. And that's, that's how we... That's how we respond to the age that's coming at us so hard. So I thought, you know, I got ordained a year after the abuse scandals, and mm. life is difficult and hard, and so fasting and penance and those kind of things are pretty good things, you know. True, very true. That's very beautiful. And, I don't know, again, the sacramental and liturgical theology in me is like, ooh, that's so, I don't know, I just finished a class on sacramental art and architecture and, like, all of the different meaning of different vessels and vestments, and so cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. I wish I took that class. I know. It was so cool. And it was actually, it was by a teacher who used to teach in Rome at the Gregorian University. Who is it? Uh, Father Liam Bergen. Oh, okay. I don't know. He's hmm. quite cool. Olivia, have you ever been to that, um, I forget the name of the museum, but I think she was an Anglican. And it's a great museum, and it's an old mansion in Boston. And yes. took me there. Yeah. What is that called? Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Holy crap. Holy cow. They have, like, beautiful paintings. But yes. also, she has, like, altarpieces, and there's so many images of Our Lady in there. And mm-hmm. That's a wonderful museum. Yes. Yeah. I've taken yeah. many field trips there <laughs> during high school. 
That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, I have had such an amazing time talking to you. I love talking to another intellectual Catholic. Um, Likewise. <laughs> do you have what's what's going on for you now? What's coming up next? Well, my hope is to get this dissertation topic approved. And once that happens, I would like to spend the month of June drafting at least part of the first chapter. Um, and then once that's done, I'm going to take a little break for summer, come home. I got to talk at a couple conferences and do some more research. And, and then I come back here in September and get cracking on the doctorate again. So that's where things stand for me um, as of now. Super cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you have any final words or advice for the young Catholics who might be listening in? My advice is to seek truth because as a human being, you're made for it. And the other day, I read this, and this is in this God in the Unconscious book by Victor White, and he was quoting Tertullian. I don't know if I could find it right now, but basically Tertullian thought that every soul was basically a Christian soul because we're, in a sense, hard... No, you see, this is it. Tertullian is celebrated for having coined the phrase anima naturaliter Christiana, um, that the soul is naturally Christian. So it's that common landscape of... Everything that Springsteen was talking about, that Scorsese interview, that you're made for truth, and that if you, like, sincerely seek it and look for it, that the Lord will not disappoint you in presenting it to you. So um, be a truth seeker, and don't settle for, like, artificial, um, like, duplications or or counterfeits of of what is actually truth. So seek the truth, and and you'll find it. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so, so much. It was so great to talk to you. And You're welcome. We will talk to the listeners next week. All right. Peace. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the To the Heights podcast, and a big thank you to Father Damien for calling in from Rome. It is always an absolute pleasure to talk about the intellectual side of Catholicism with you. And your advice for my generation and for those discerning is amazing and holy. Thank you for the gift of you. Father Damien can be found on Twitter at frference, and his book can be found at pauline.org. Be sure to tune in next week for some very awesome and very funny and holy guests. But until then, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ToTheHeightsCTV, or find me at OliviaRose underscore art or OliviaRoseArt.com. Talk to you next week and keep on reaching to the heights.